The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead, Books Editor of The Guardian and Observer. This week, we listen in to a Guardian Live event with Jeanette Winterson and Helen MacDonald. MacDonald, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, is the author of this year's surprise bestseller, H is for Hawk, a bewitching combination of grief memoir and falconry. While Winterson recently followed up her name-making, fictionalised memoir Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit with an unfictionalised one, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal? Host Alex Clark began by asking her about the genesis of the book. We apologise for the inconsistent quality of the recording throughout. Yeah, so 30 years ago, as discussed, I wrote Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which immediately went into the marmalades and preserve sections of good bookshops everywhere. Um, <laughs> gradually found its way out, I think by word of mouth, because this was 1985, um, and people started to read it and get interested in it. But because there's a character in it called Jeanette, as I always wanted to be a fiction as well as a fact. Everybody assumed at once straight away that it had to be some sort of autobiography because, you know, if you're a woman and you use yourself as a fictional character, well, it has to be some kind of confessional, doesn't it? Whereas, you know, if you're a man, you're actually doing some postmodern play uh, on the contemporary novel and a critique on identity, and there's lots of references to Foucault. But, you know, if you're a, if you're a girl, it's just about you. So... I fought with that for the best part of 27 years, but it didn't really matter because, you know, life moved forward. Um, and then I decided I would have to revisit that material again, but not in fictional form this time. This was because my father had died and I had found some documents which led me to believe that my biological mother might still be alive. And so I began that journey, really that detective story. And pursuing that, I was forced to think again about Winterson World and what that meant. So really, there were two parts to this book, Why Be Happy. One was written in real time, which was the search for the biological mother and what that might entail, and the frightening effects that it had on me. Very, very frightening. I have a good memory. I used to forget things. I'd lose things. It was, it was incredibly difficult. So I was trying to write that down as a way of dealing with it. And then at the same time, I was writing the backstory, the Winterson Well story, of how it was growing up in Accrington in the 1960s and 70s in a world that was frankly bonkers. So this is a bit from there, and it's suitably entitled The Apocalypse. Mrs. Winterson was not a welcoming woman. If anybody knocked at the door, she ran down the lobby and shoved the poker through the letterbox. I reminded her that angels often come in disguise, and she said that was true, but they didn't come disguised in crimpoline. Part of the problem was that we had no bathroom, and she was ashamed of this. Not many people did have bathrooms, but I was not allowed to have friends from school in case they wanted to use the toilet, 
And then they would have to go outside. And then they would discover that we had no bathroom. In fact, that was the least of it. A bigger challenge for unbelievers than a drafty encounter with an outside loo was what was waiting for them when they got there. We were not allowed books, but we lived in a world of print. And Mrs. Winterson wrote out exhortations and stuck them all over the house. So under my coat peg, there was a sign that said, Think of God, not the dog. And over the gas oven, on a wrapper, it said, Man shall not live by bread alone. But in the outside loo, directly in front of you, as you went through the door, there was a placard. And those who stood up read, Linger not at the Lord's business. <laughs> While those who sat down read, He shall melt thy bowels like wax. <laughs> this was wishful thinking. My mother was having trouble with her bowels. It was something to do with the loaf of white slice that we couldn't live by. And when I went to school, my mother put quotes from the scriptures into my hockey boots. And at mealtimes, there was a little scroll from the promise box by each of our plates. A promise box is a box with Bible text rolled up in it, like the jokes that you get in Christmas crackers, but serious. And the little rolls stand on end and you close your eyes and pick one out. It can be comforting. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Or it can be frightening. The sins of the father shall be visited on the children. But cheery or depressing, it was all reading. And reading was what I wanted to do. Fed words and shod with them. Words became clues. Peace by peace, I knew that they would lead me somewhere else. Now, the only time that Mrs. Winterson liked to answer the door was when she knew that the Mormons were coming round. And then she waited in the lobby, and before they'd drop the knocker, she'd flung open the door, waving her Bible and warning them of eternal damnation. And this was confusing for the Mormons because they thought they were in charge of eternal damnation. But Mrs. Winterson was a better candidate for the job. Now and again, if she was in a sociable frame of mind and there was a knock at the door, she left the poker alone and sent me out the back to run up the alley and peer around the corner, see who was there. I ran back with the news, and then she decided whether they could come in or not. And I went to open the door. But by now, discouraged by no response, the visitor would be halfway down the street, so I had to run and fetch them back, and then my mother would pretend to be surprised and pleased to see them. I didn't care. It gave me a chance to go upstairs and read a forbidden book. I think Mrs. Winterson had been well-read at one time. So when I was about seven, she read Jane Eyre to me. This was deemed suitable because it has a minister in it, St. John Rivers, who is keen on missionary work. Mrs. Winterson read out loud, turning the pages. There is the terrible fire at Thornfield Hall, and Mr. Rochester goes blind. But in the version that Mrs. Winterson read, Jane doesn't bother about her now sightless paramour. She marries St. John Rivers. <laughs> and they go off together to work in the mission field. 
It was only when I finally read Jane Eyre for myself that I found out what my mother had done. And she did it so well, turning the pages and inventing the text extempore in the style of Charlotte Bronte. The book disappeared as I got older. Perhaps she didn't want me to read it for myself. I assumed that she hid books the way she hid everything else, including her heart. But our house was small and I searched it. Were we endlessly ransacking the house, the two of us, looking for evidence of each other? I think we were. She, because I was fatally unknown to her and she was afraid of me. And me, because I had no idea what was missing, but felt the missingness of the missing. We circled each other, wary, abandoned, full of longing. We came close, but not close enough. And then we pushed each other away, forever. I did find a book, but I wish I hadn't. It was hidden in the tall boy under a pile of flannels, and it was a 1950s sex manual called How to Please Your Husband. This terrifying tome might have explained why Mrs. Winterson didn't have children. It had black and white diagrams and lists and tips, and most of the positions looked like adverts for a children's game of physical torment called Twister. As I pondered the horrors of heterosexuality, I realized that I need not feel sorry for either of my parents. My mother hadn't read it. Well, perhaps she'd opened it once and realizing the extent of the task had put it away. The book was flat, pristine, intact. So whatever my father had had to do without, and I really don't think they ever had sex. He hadn't had to spend his nights with Mrs. Winterson with one hand on his penis and the other holding the manual while she followed the instructions. <laughs> I remember her telling me soon after they were married that my father had come home drunk and she had locked him out of the bedroom. He'd broken down the door and she had thrown her wedding ring out of the window into the gutter and got on the night bus to Blackburn. This was offered as an illustration of how Jesus improves a marriage. The only sex education my mother ever gave me was the injunction, never let a boy touch you down there. <laughs> I had no idea what she meant because she seemed to be pointing at my knees. Would it have been better if I'd fallen for a boy and not a girl? Probably not. I had entered her own fearful place, the terror of the body, the irresolution of her marriage, her own mother's humiliation at her father's coarseness and womanizing. Sex disgusted her. And now, when she looked at me, she saw sex. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeanette. Helen, would you like With to read? Trepidation. With trepidation after that. Oh, my goodness. 
I'm going to read a bit from the, the book about her. Uh, if you've read the book, you'll know the, the story. My dad died. We were very good friends. I fell apart. I decided for reasons that only sort of obliquely are discussed in the book that what I needed to deal with my grief was to train a goshawk. I don't recommend this generally as a way of dealing with bereavement, but um, that's what I did. Um, so I ended up buying one on the internet. Again, that sounds worse than it was. I did know the man I bought it from. It wasn't Craigslist. And I drove up to Scotland to pick up this new hawk. And this bit of the book is our first meeting. Time passed on the Scottish quay and brightness moved in from the sea. Then a man was walking towards us, holding two enormous cardboard boxes like a couple of oversized suitcases, strangely alien suitcases that didn't seem to obey the laws of physics. Because as he walked, they moved unpredictably in concert neither with his steps nor with gravity. Whatever is in them is moving, I thought with a little thump of my heart. He set the boxes down, ran his hand through his hair, I'm meeting another falconer here in a bit. He's having the younger bird. Yours is the older. It's bigger, too. So, he said. He ran his hand through his hair again, exposing a long talon scratch across his wrist, angry at his edges and scurfed with dried blood. We'll check the ring numbers against the Article 10s, he explained, pulling a sheaf of yellow paper from the rucksack and unfolding two of the official forms that accompany captive-bred rare birds through their lives. Don't want you going home with the wrong bird. We noted the numbers. We stared down at the boxes, at their parcel tape handles, their doors of thin plywood, and their hinges of carefully tied string. Then he knelt on the concrete, untied a hinge on the smaller box, and squinted into its dark interior. A sudden thump of feathered shoulders, and the box shook as if someone had punched it hard from within. She's got her hood off, he said, and frowned. That light leather hood was to keep the hawk from fearful sights. Like us. Another hinge untied. Concentration. Infinite caution. Daylight irrigating the box. Scratching talons. Another thump. And another thump. The air turned syrupy, slow, flecked with dust, the last few seconds before a battle, and with the last bow pulled free, he reached inside, and amidst a whirring, chaotic clatter of wings and feet and talons and a high-pitched twittering, and it's all happening at once, the man pulls an enormous, enormous hawk out of the box, and in a strange coincidence of world and deed, a great flood of sunlight drenches us, and everything is brilliance and fury. The hawk's wings barred and beating, the sharp fingers of her dark-tipped primaries cutting the air, her feathers raised like the scattered quills of a fretful porpentine. I, I stole that from Hamlet. <laughs> Two enormous eyes. My heart jumps sideways. She's a conjuring trick, a reptile, a fallen angel, a, a griffin from the pages of an illuminated bestiary, something bright and distant like gold falling through water a broken marionette of wings, legs, and light-splashed feathers. She's wearing jesses, and the man holds them. And for one awful long moment, she's hanging head downward, wings open like a turkey in a butcher's shop. Only her head is turned right way up, and she is seeing more than she has ever seen before in her whole short life. Her world was an aviary no larger than a living room, and then it was a box. But now it is this, and she can see everything. The point source glitter on the waves, a diving cormorant a hundred yards out, pigment flakes under wax on the lines of parked cars, far hills and the heather on them, and miles and miles of sky where the sun spreads on dust and water, 
and illegible things moving in it that are white scraps of gulls. Everything is startling and new stamped on her entirely astonished brain. And through all this, the man was perfectly calm. He gathered up the hawk in one practiced movement, folding her wings, anchoring her broad feathered back against his chest, gripping her scale yellow legs in one hand. Let's get that hood back on, he said tautly. There was concern in his face. It was born of care. This hawk had been hatched in an incubator, had broken from a frail bluish eggshell into a humid perspex box. And for the first few days of her life, this man had fed her with scraps of meat held in a pair of tweezers, waiting patiently for the lumpen, fluffy chick to notice the food and eat, her new neck wobbling with the effort of keeping her head in the air. All at once I loved this man and fiercely. I grabbed the hood from the box and turned to the hawk. Her beak was open, her hackles raised, her wild eyes were the color of sun on white paper, and they stared because the whole world had fallen into them at once. One, two, three. I tucked the hood over her head. There was a brief intimation of a thin, angular skull under her feathers, of an alien brain fizzing and fusing with terror, and then I drew the braces closed. We checked the ring numbers against the form. It was the wrong bird. This was the younger one, the smaller one. This was not my hawk. Oh, so we put her back and opened the other box, which was meant to hold the larger, older bird. And dear God, it did. Everything about this second hawk was different. She came out like a Victorian melodrama, a sort of madwoman in the attack. She was smaller and darker and much, much bigger, and instead of twittering, she wailed. Great awful gouts of sound like a thing in pain, and the sound was unbearable. This is my hawk, I was telling myself, and it was all I could do to breathe. She too was bareheaded, and I grabbed the hood from the box as before, but as I brought it up to her face, I looked into her eyes, and I saw something blank and crazy in her stare, some madness from a distant country. I didn't recognize her. This isn't my hawk. The hood was on, the ring numbers checked, the bird back in the box, the yellow form folded, the money exchanged, and all I could think was, but this isn't my hawk. Slow panic. I knew what I had to say, and it was a monstrous breach of etiquette. This is really awkward, I began, but I really liked the first one. Do you think there's any chance I could take that one instead? I tailed off. His eyebrows were raised. I started again, saying stupider things. I'm sure the other falconer would like the larger bird. She's more beautiful than the first one, isn't she? Um, I, I, I know this is out of order, but could I, could I? Would it be all right, do you think? And on and on, in a desperate, crazy barrage of incoherent appeals. And I'm sure nothing I said persuaded him more than the look on my face as I said it. A tall, white-faced woman with wind-wrecked hair and exhausted eyes was pleading with him on a quayside, hands held out as if she were in a seaside production of Medea. Looking at me, he must have sensed that my stuttered request wasn't a simple one, that there was something behind it that was very important. There was a moment of total silence. All right, he said. And then, because he didn't see me believe him, Yes, yes, I'm sure that will be okay.
Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace. When it's time to create a website for whatever's newsworthy in your life, whether that's a small business, online store, professional portfolio, or just a blog, go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Thank you both. A terrific pair of readings. I want to start by asking you to talk a little bit more about where these books come from. They obviously both come from a place of loss, but they're also, it seems to me, trying to figure out what that loss is. They're sort of, I think you refer to it as a lost loss. Mm. You're actually trying to work out, not just chronicling the loss itself, but what it actually is. Could you both talk a bit more about that, do you think? Oof. Well, we're off now, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. Oh, well, I mean, the obvious loss being my father. Um, and what was really interesting about this book is because it's about the wild world, about the natural world, and about losing oneself in it. What I was sort of doing with the hawk was in some ways recapitulating what I did with my dad when I was small, which was to go out and look at things and spot them. And I think towards the end of the book, what starts to happen is that that loss, that loss of my father, the loss of, of becoming an orphan, um, the loss of kind of understanding how the world works started to be replaced with this weird hawk's eye view. But then slowly it becomes a book about bigger losses. It becomes a, a book about losing, uh, losing the life that's out there, you know. And I've sort of said several times in, in the book that, you know, we, we need history. We need to remember what was there out there in the green world. It's disappearing at such a rapid rate. You know, I, I took my niece out on a walk in a nature reserve a few months ago and she turned to me afterwards and said, when they made this place, where did they bring the animals from? Did they come from a zoo? You know, she didn't understand that it was all like this, you know, when I was a kid. So, I mean, that loss is one that's, I think, I didn't expect it to be so present towards the end of the book, but it becomes a book about all losses and some of those losses are not human. Um, that's where that came from. I think that's, I think that's right. So it's, I mean, we're, we're always working with loss, aren't we? I mean, it, it's the beginning of the Western religious myth. We're locked out of paradise. You know, we've lost the place where we thought we could be happy, the place where everything was meant to work out. And, you know, all of us in various uh, tones and calibrations feel that at some point in our lives, I think, that we're, that, that we're working things which are also in shadow, that we don't even know what that loss necessarily is. Sometimes we do because we've lost a parent or a partner or a loved one in some way, or, you know, we've lost a job, we've lost a home, you know, we've lost a country. You know, there's so much that we're always losing. And trying to understand that, uh, to work with it, to make sense of it, seems to me to be a primary part of the human journey. Um, and in writing, you can do that so well because you're allowed this place of reflection and the, the interesting thing about books is that although we read them we, we read sequentially at least for the first time after that we don't it's not like watching a movie where you're forced to watch the thing in sequence you can go back um, the process of reading is very much like the process of remembering I think it doesn't happen in sequence you know there is a chronology but you know we all know that the way that we remember things isn't chronological that things sit side by side according to their emotions impact and memories stir and impact one on the other don't they so you can think of something that happened five years ago ten years ago and watch it find its place with something that's happened just yesterday um, and these processes of the mind are not chaotic but they're not linear 
And I think that's really important. And part of mental health, it seems to me, is being able to live in a way uh, which is not linear. And everything about our society now forces us into some kind of, of, of linear reality. We have to in order to function. What time is it? Where am I going? One day follows the other. But for our, our deeper processes, that simply doesn't obtain. Um, and so when I was writing this, I realized that although there's your own micro journey, isn't there? There's, you know, this, this Helen, this me, there's what we're doing. But then we, you find that you've segued into something which is much bigger, which has a universal application, which is about this human journey. How do we deal with loss? You know, how do we remember loss? Um, what tricks does memory play? What, what are we trying to work with in ourselves? And that's what I was trying to do when I, when I was with this... It was actually quite schizophrenic because of the endless forgetting when I was looking for Biomar, but also the acute remembering of Wintersome World and trying somehow to bring those parts of me together in a way which would not only make sense to me and therefore heal me a little bit, but might heal other people too. Because in the end, that's what you want to happen. You want to make a difference. You're not really just sitting there typing it out for yourself. You're thinking, I would like this to be about communication. You know, that's what writing's for, isn't it? It's interesting that both of you, in a sense, used a, a way to kind of fracture the narrative in order mm. to sort of reflect a kind of fracture that you were trying to communicate. So, Jeanette, this book is really in dialogue with Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, yeah. in a way. And it's also a book of two halves. You sort of recapitulate your early life mm. and, I suppose, change a little bit, tweak what you called the cover version yeah. of Oranges. And then you rapidly bring us up to date with what's happening. Mm. And, Helen, you also inserted a whole different thing into H's for Hawk, this story of another person in isolation, T.H. White, the writer and Goshawk trainer. And it struck me that both of those were ways of just saying, OK, I cannot write this, as you said, in a linear way. It can't be done. Well, I think those eruptions in narrative that you did, I mean, they, they, they become part of the whole story. They're not, like, yeah. they're not sections. I mean, it's not that one thing no, can be I wanted, I wanted that tangle. And part of that was um, for reasons that were... I mean, that, when you were saying earlier about when you were sort of writing and how, how you kind of have those sort of various selves that you're negotiating and sort of working mm. with. I was very surprised writing my book how oddly unconscious that process was. I thought I could sort of sit there and sort of shuffle the cards and lay it all out on the table and say, right, I'll go from here to here. You know, that kind of dream of being able to organise things. I'm not very good at organising anything, if you see my house. But... um it never worked like that. And there were times when I was quite shocked how suddenly I'd find myself writing about white in a part that I thought was going to be right about myself. People have asked me, is he some kind of like, you know, does he, is he you? And I guess to the extent that anyone in a book that, you know, that you write is, a, yeah. is you, I, I guess, he guess he is. But I mean, there was a sense of a haunting there that was, that was really peculiar. Just tell us a little bit mm. about, about him and his, his yeah, story. Yeah, so he, he was, I'm sure many of you have read The Sword of the Stone, The Once and Future King. The very unfashionable, although possibly more fashionable now, um, people keep saying that they're buying his books, and I'm thinking, oh gosh, his estate's going to be very happy. I've You've done, done a little a good bit deed, of good for yeah. T.H. White's estate. <laughs> um, very strange person to work with. I, 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 he was, uh, had a horrendous childhood, uh, was pretty scarred by his schooling um, and by his, his parents, and was sort of struggling, um, this is in the 1930s, with his sexuality, not a good time to be gay. He was also had sort of sadistic impulses. He was really horrified. Where, uh, uh, he just thought, you know, I'm, I'm broken. And he couldn't cope with pretending to be someone else, so he ran away to uh, live in a cottage in the wood to train a goshawk. He thought that would solve everything. 
it's kind of a bit of a motif here. And I guess his story kind of deep down was why I might have flown to get a gospel when my dad died. It was that sense that when things are bad, that's some kind of escape. Mm. His story's kind of tangled up with mine because I think both his story and mine are about trying to put yourself in, losing yourself in other <sighs> eyes. And one of those sets of eyes is the eyes of the hawk. You know, what's it like to try and speak through animal eyes? How can you write a memoir about an animal and becoming an animal? That seemed to me a very interesting thing to try and do. And partly they were, you know, there's the eyes of T.H. White, who was in many ways harder to get in. He's, he's very sort of candid in his journals and diaries, but trying to sort of inhabit him and, and write him in a sort of imaginative way was, was really fascinating. And it was kind of, it was like a huge conversation, just, just endlessly sitting there talking to my old self, talking to T.H. White, talking to the hawk, and then talking to this magical sort of imagined reader who I discovered really early on I had to trust implicitly, otherwise I couldn't write a word. Well, you, you mentioned mm. communication and the importance of it, Jeanette, there. Mm. These, these readers that you were talking to imagined, were they continually changing? Were they different people? Well, in so much as the self is a multiple state, mm. um, which it is, you know, I think the idea of the of a unitary self is both elusive and unhelpful. You know, many people live inside us, and it's being able to talk to it, all of those people that are inside you, and not endlessly wonder, you know, why you're not somehow this homogenised product that is meant to just go forward into the world and be. Mm. Um, you know, I, th I do think, you know, we're dealing a lot here with mental health, but, you know, a lot of people's struggles there are because they feel they should be either one thing, uh, and they can't be. You they know, should you, cohere. Definitely, yeah, mm -hmm. but you can't because, you know, also as, you, as, you, as your life develops and you change, thing, you know, you alter, you know, you don't, you should not stay the same, you should not be the same, you should be able to have this conversation with the self. We've talked about the unitary self and how it's a myth, we've talked about how you have to jostle all these selves. Mm. Nonetheless, you do have to contain them in memoir writing in an eye. There is an eye that you have to put on the page, which must feel extremely difficult as you're going along creating this narrative. It has to cohere in some way. That's the writing eye, though. Exactly. What is yeah. the writing eye? Who is that eye? Well, I don't think it's one eye. I mean, it's, mm. that, 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 that letter is a wonderfully forgiving eye. Because, uh, and it's also very expansive and capacious, you know, within that eye that seems so certain and so clear, um, you know, that, that, that single stroke, this is me, um, is everything that you want to put in there. I mean, really, there aren't any rules. Either. The point is you have to take the reader with you. And if you do, it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, but I think if you're interested at all in truth, you know, this question of are we writing in a way which is closer to both our, our dreams processes, the way that we actually understand life against this linear pattern, which I think is so false, then obviously you want to get that in there. Mm. You know, you don't want a beginning and a middle and an end. You want to have those twists and shapes and curves and things which seem not relevant at all, but then as you write with them, I do, I'm sure you found this, you put something in there and you think, I don't know why this is here, and then it will become a, incredibly important, yeah. almost a touchstone or a yeah. lodestone, uh, as the thing went on. So it's, it's trusting um, the place which isn't formulaic, isn't it? And also a place which can often seem scary and chaotic. And writing from that, mm. uh, and then allowing it to cohere later on. You know, with my students in Manchester, I often find they're, they're far too quick 
to start doing the editing process before they've allowed any creative process to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that, that's the huge mistake that people make. They're trying to, to, to follow some pattern, some mm. template. You know, it's like knitting. You know, I'll put the sleeves on now and then I'll put, you know, finish the borders at the bottom. But it, it doesn't work like that. Like no. that. Well, no. it's interesting that, of, of course, people just try to fit it into nature writing, they yeah. try to fit it into memoir writing. Yeah. And you're basically saying that both, in both your cases, you needed to break free of those restrictions. Well, I, I guess that the restrictions weren't in mind, obviously in mind when I started writing, but, but it, it, it became very clear that what I was doing wasn't going to fit into the, you know, the, in the right place on the shelf, a bit like, you know, going into the jam making section. It's like, you know, is this, mm. is this the bird section or the misery <laughs> section? Exactly. You know, where does it go? But that sense that we were saying, Jeanette, about how when you're, when you're writing, there's a, a, a sort of sense in which that, you know, patterns emerge much later. So there's a bit that I, mean, I write about chaffinches and some really quite grim experiments that went on in the 1950s. The chaffinches, how um, a scientist called Thorpe was keeping them in, in soundproofed boxes and trying to see how that, whether they, they could ever sing properly because they'd never heard any other chaffinches. I had no idea why that went in there at that time. It just seemed something that I needed to put in because I could hear a chaffinch at that point in the book. And then it started to spool out this whole thing that I didn't know was going to be there at all about how your early experiences teach you a lot of things about who you are, which you then spend the rest of your life dealing with or working with, and about isolation and about loneliness and about singing and speech. And these things, you know, it was a, it was a surprise. And, and, and the fact that as you write, things become surprising over and over and over and over again. And you, you start to kind of dislocate from the book you're writing. You feel it, that feel that you're, it starts to shut you out mm. in a way that's very, mm. very pleasing as it becomes more and more complete. I'd never done this before. I mean, you've done this like a million times. You're the most amazing kind of, you know, canon of, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah. this is my first big book, and I, uh, this was all very new to me, this sense that the book starts to kind of move well, with and the, against both you. Both the books are very dynamic in the sense that what you feel is that things are happening to you both as you go along, yes. and there's a sense of great energy and also danger, something kind of being at stake. I mean, uh, you mentioned the book being in some ways schizophrenic. It does feel at various points it's falling apart and getting out of your control. You have to take those risks. If you don't, you, you probably will just um, achieve something. You know, Ruskin used to be fantastically contemptuous of anything that could be managed you know, with, with sandpaper and measurement. And I suppose there is that sense that you have to, you, you risk yourself and you risk the book for quite a long time. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not stupid. If it's not worth publishing, then it gets burned. You know, I throw away all my stuff. I don't keep it because it, it doesn't get better in the drawer. You know, if it was crap when it went in, it's crap when it comes out. Um, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing mysterious about the inside of a drawer. <laughs> no. There's no transformative process to something. Yeah, sort of a sort of Narnian process yeah, be, coming it would in. be great, wouldn't it? Well, you just put it in there, the oil will be fine when it comes out. Your perspective on something might change. I know, though. but if you're, you, I, I always have a feeling when something is right or not right. Uh, and I just trust that. Now, indeed, I might be wrong. You know, the, I was writing a book... Um, the, it's for the new Hogarth Shakespeare series, my cover version of The Winter's Tale, called The Gap of Time. And at Christmas, I realised I had to destroy 13,000 words. Um, and I destroyed it by printing it and burning it and by double deleting it, so I could never, never go back there. It has to cease to exist completely. Yeah, and I, made, I just thought, I'm going in, I thought, this is fine, they'll publish it. And I thought, I just, I hate myself. So I thought, I'll just, it wasn't good enough. And the, and the, and the word destruct, I mean, you had to destroy them. You didn't, you, destroy, could, you couldn't yeah, just yeah. throw them away. No, they, no, they had no. to absolutely had to obliterated completely. Because, you know, but the, the act of destruction, I think, prompts something in the brain to say, <laughs> we, better, we better do this again. 
Um, whereas if you're endlessly cutting and pasting, it's one of the problems with computers that somehow make you f it, it looks mm. great, whatever you do, and you think, I'll just move all this around. And, and actually, you just chuck it away. It's much better and start again. You know, like with dry stone walls, uh, when it's, it's, it's beginning to wobble, yeah. you have to go back to where it you was You know, level. there's that feeling you think, oh, no, there's yeah, nothing no, that can be done nothing. now. Back to the ground. But, yeah, and, there's no, and you have to. And it's no good just thinking, oh, well, it looks nice. Um, I'll, I'll just grow something up here. <laughs> <Yeah, because laughs> it, it cannot work. So, you know, my view really is to take the risk to be bold with yourself and your work. Yeah. And, and trust your creativity. I mean, why do we think we've only got this like, little pot of creativity and it'll all run out? You have to believe in creativity as something which is bigger and better than you. And you can have it. So what's mm. the problem? Absolutely. And it gets, it gets bigger the more yeah. you... The more you you know, use it. That sounds but wrong. What you're both talking about in, in both of <laughs> Moving on. Product, please. Absolutely. <laughs> what you're both talking about in, in both of these books, though, what, what happens in these books is that you both go to very extreme places. I mean, you're quite a lot of the time when you're talking about your identification with Mabel, the gospel, when you're talking about some of the things yeah. that you're doing with her, yeah. you are talking about dissociating in a way, yes. separating yourself off, not just from the world, but also from yourself, from your understanding, trying to live in that moment of the present to shut oh, out Oh, absolutely. There was a huge, a huge split there. And that was really fascinating to try and get across in prose. So the bit in the book is basically, I don't, I don't want to be me anymore. I want to be a hawk because hawks don't suffer any kind of emotional agonies and they go and kill things. And I wanted to do those. I was quite kind of ragey. So I become a hawk in my mind. Uh, it's a very perilous kind of identification in all sorts of ways. And in fact, what's happening is that underneath, I'm, I'm just incredibly grieving my dad, and it's, it's sort of bleeding through in all sorts of unexpected ways. I get very depressed. But trying to capture what it's like, the phenomenal world of going out and flying the hawk and seeing her fly every day, that was fascinating to try and do. And, and I, I found myself working a lot of incredibly short staccato sentences mm. into, the, into mm. the text, making it extremely visual, um, it becomes a sort of uh, writing that's, that's all about eyes and damage, really. Eyes and, and, and scratches and thorns and falling over and, and blood. And that was something that took a long time to try and w work out how to do. I started to try to, initially to do kind of these big, long, King Jamesian kind of sentences. I was trying to make it very grand, and I thought, this isn't working at all. So I had to sort of pair it right back. Can I ask you, were you actually going through those emotions as you were writing? This was not all recollected afterwards and, and written. I didn't run around a field with a notebook in uh, the notebook or anything. No, I didn't fall over in the mud. And, but they were. But they were very, very clear memories. Very clear memories. Yeah, and mm. that very strange feeling of becoming a person that I wasn't anymore. I mean, you, exactly. Mm. You know that that feeling of. Uh, it's a bit like sort of. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to the, the, the sort of the Greenwich. You know, there's the line, and you sort of step with one foot over it and one foot the other side, and you think, you know, oh, and it was kind of like that. One foot was in a long way away in a different person, um, and I had to kind of duck in and out to try and pull that person onto the page. It was a very weird, very tiring kind of thing. I used to have sort of go and smoke a lot and drink, eat a lot of pizza afterwards after doing the, the very miserable bits. But oddly enough, those bits were easier to do than the straightforward bits about grief. The straightforward declarative sentences about my life and what was happening were much harder to write than these strange kind of um, bacchic sort of rituals with the hawk, really. They, they, they were, once I'd hit upon the style, they, they kind of fell onto the page quite quickly. Jeanette, was that how it was for you? Because there are some very extreme parts of mm. this book. What you read was a much more sort of straightforwardly almost comic Yeah, well, they just come in. I thought mm. they should have a laugh. Um, I, you know, and Can it, I give you this Yeah, again? it's fine. And it, it's both things together, you see, because you want... 
Things work better when people can, can laugh and cry, often, you know, with, just with a little turn or just in the same few beats, because we, we, you know, we do go through many emotions, you know, and it happens in the way when you're writing it, and it happens when you're reading it, that people want to laugh and cry to feel all kinds of things at mm. the same time. Mm. You know, it's that richness of emotion, I think, which, which, which makes text work. But, you know, when I'm writing it myself, whatever I'm writing, sometimes it's so powerful that, you know, I'm thinking, oh, God, you know, I can't look, and then you've got your hands over your eyes, you think, I can't type, actually, because if you've got your hands over your eyes, you can't type, and then you're trying to type with one hand and think, I can't look. I thought that was just, I, mm, I didn't know, everyone, you do that as well, yes, you see? Yes. I'm going to go <laughs> confess no, no, that. No, um, trying to make, to bring this thing into happening. Yeah. But often it's the clarity of the language which gives you back your own peace of mind and, and clarity of thought. You know, it is giving you a way to think about it. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's Dante says in the, in the Divine Comedy that, that poetry puts into words things difficult to think. And that's what we're doing, but it's not just difficult to think, it's also things that are difficult to feel, because, you know, feelings are really hard work. I personally do not like to have more than one feeling at a time. I can easily manage lots of thought, and I can have opposing opinions, you know, I can argue in my mind, I'm very good at that, but if I have to have more than one feeling, I absolutely hate it, and it's been something I've had to learn over the years. And, and something that I can get at through writing, because in fact, of course, when you write, you're always having more than one feeling, and you recognise that the one feeling doesn't cancel out the other. Uh, you know, it's this sense again of things, you know, somehow coexisting in the self instead of having to be chosen or decided upon. You know, I'll have this one and not that one. This is me. This is not me. Um, recognising rather that there are all these conflicting, competing parts, and finding a language for that. And if the language is right, then you know that you've got the emotion right. You know. That you've got the thought right and that's when it gets that power of of conveyance and comes across to the person reading it whose situation is not like yours i mean very mm. few people have flown a goshawk um and as you say it's not a method that generally people use in order to address grief but the book has been so amazingly powerful across the world to so many people not only because of getting i think involved with the wild part of ourselves again in a, in a world which is far too tame but because you were able to write it in a way which made us connect and it seemed like we, we really were there and that's the power and the success of it. We are you. We are the hawk. We are in that situation. And it is a sleight of hand. It's a conjuring trick. But it's also the most powerful and sustainable one. That's why we go back to texts that are hundreds of years old, because they're still working for us. You know, because language works across time to carry forward that emotion, that feeling, that situation, which would otherwise be lost. And things which are far, far away from our own experience. It's why it's such a load of shit when people say, oh, you know, people should only either write what they know from their experience experience or read what's from their experience how can that be you know the whole point is about widening yourself yeah. and also widening yourself through writing widening yourself through reading you know and we do a lot of disservice to kids where we somehow think they can't manage the richness of literature because it isn't what they know it's nothing to do with their experience whether it's on a council estate or you know when it's growing up with a single parent you know we somehow think we have to put everything down to uh, of a very particular situation of our lives. You know, mm. and if, if H yeah, is the Hawk is anything, and it's many things, it says, you know, that's complete nonsense. Something as far away and unlikely as flying a Hawk to deal with the death of your father becomes a worldwide success because we feel it. Can I ask you both what it felt mm. like to finish these books? Because, of course, grief doesn't end, personal stories don't end, the complication of life doesn't end. Mm. But you did have to write the last page of yeah. That was a real books. that was a real surprise. 
Uh, my book's got two endings, really, which was a bit of a sort of... It's got a postscript as well. But the actual ending, which is just where I put a hawk into an aviary and walk away, reconciled to the fact that she's going to forget me over the next few months as she molds her feathers, which she didn't do, of course. She was like, oh, hi, Helen, when I, when I turned back up again. <laughs> nice to see you. Um, I had no sense as I was writing the book that it was grief work. It was a fascinating relationship. It was a little bit like sometimes trying to, to ride a horse that was running away with you. Sometimes like a, you're trying to sort of wrangle it and make it go somewhere and it wasn't moving. It was like interacting with, with something that was almost but not quite alive. I hadn't expected that. So that became the, the primary relationship in the book was me and the book, this weird sort of, you know, sense that I was, was wrangling something. But then when I wrote the last paragraph and, you know, pressed the, the final full stop, uh, I really had this extraordinary physical reaction. Um, my eyes went all weird. I, I kind of nearly fell over, and I realised that the book really had been a, a goodbye. It was a goodbye to my dad, but it was also a goodbye to the person I'd been then. Mm. And it was a proper goodbye. That was it. And it, it, I felt incredibly changed at that point. And I told my parrot this. You know, I was like, I feel very strange. Parrots and the parrot came over and gave me a cuddle. Um, I have a parrot now. Um, <laughs> But it was very, very unexpected. That sense that there's work going on when you write a life story that, that happens at a level way below consciousness and it, it, it sort of builds and, and fixes itself and does things to you that you might not realise until... They, well, I didn't realise until it was finished. Was, was it similar for you, Jeanette? Well, the last line of, of Why I Be Happy is I have no idea what happens next, which was true, so I wrote it. I mean, I called the book back at proof stage to add a, really the last chapter. It's not exactly a coda, but it just wasn't quite ready, and I needed to say something else, and that was unexpected. You know, it's just this nagging business that I hadn't finished it in the way that I wanted to finish it. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, the book will tell you, won't it? You know, you, you're working in cooperation with something else. It's, it, you have to be able to listen to what the book's telling you, uh, and it develops a life of its own. There's no question of that and asks you to revisit certain passages, amplify others, excise others, and to be able to say things that you don't necessarily want to say. I mean, there, were, there was quite a lot in Why I Be Happy I didn't want to write, but I felt that I couldn't... Uh, it, it, it would have made it a much, a, a much poorer book if I had pulled back from those things, and that included the end, where I'd had a huge fight with Biomar, and it had all gone horribly wrong, because these things do go horribly wrong. And I hadn't wanted that to be the end, of course. And often, you know, we're very broken when ends happen in ways that uh, are not anticipated or imagined. Mm. But they do. And so the end of Why I'd Be Happy, I think it's very positive, but it's also, it's also very painful. And, and it also opens the, opens the text in, into where life must open up. We don't know mm -hmm. what happens next. You know, you micromanage all the small things in your life, and the big things happen by chance and completely unexpectedly. And that is the truth of us. And so I think, you know, in both of our books, that sense is very much there, that these, that these huge things happen to you. You didn't ask for them. Um, they come unbidden. And then you must manage them somehow and integrate them, these things which cannot be integrated to start with. This horrible thing which is completely outside of you has to somehow be integrated so that it's inside of you. And that happens in the process, for me anyway, I know for you, of writing it and making that coherent space out of what is otherwise just simply a babble. And that's all from us this week. Thanks to Helen, Jeanette and Alex Clark. We always love to have feedback on this podcast, so please do get in touch. You can find the page by searching for Guardian Books Podcast, or you can follow us on SoundCloud, sign up on iTunes, or join us on The Guardian's Facebook page. 
We look forward to hearing from you. And until we do, from me, Claire Armistead, and our producer, Eva Krishak, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.